Okay, hello everyone. And we're going to be talking about can you change a narcissist? Okay? I hope it doesn't bring any smiles on anybody's people's faces because narcissism is not exactly a laughing matter. And, um, <clears throat> you know, coming from the Jewish tradition thousands of years old, I don't know what name they had for narcissists. Today everyone has a name, everything is a syndrome. Everything is another uh, diagnosis and a condition. And sometimes they just call somebody selfish, a selfish person who, who's thought about himself all day, today may be called a narcissist. But the fact of the matter is that narcissism is a real uh, problem, especially when it comes to relationships and marriage. You know, to me, to use a layman's type of definition of narcissism is I always find uh, two key things Sometimes it's called, there are people called compulsive narcissists. They're like an extreme version. You know, you're having a conversation with someone, and within 30 seconds of any conversation about any topic, you could be talking about outer space, you can be talking about something that happened thousands of years ago, and they'll always, within 30 seconds, they'll, the word I will come into the conversation. Like you speak to somebody about, let's say, man landing on the moon, so well, you know, discussing an abstract topic. And a person will say, yeah, I once knew someone from NASA. We're not talking about you. We're not talking about who you knew. But that's one of the signs of somebody that sees everything through the lens of themselves. That's one of the classical uh, signs. Obviously, it's not the only sign, but it's one. Uh, another thing is, a narcissist, when you have a discussion or an argument with a narcissist, the argument will never be resolved because the person who's the narcissist always feels right. And if you don't agree with them, they don't say you disagree. They say you don't understand what I'm saying. And if you really understood what I was saying, you would agree with me. And if you tell somebody, and I've tested this many times, you tell somebody, I actually d disagree with you. That's because you don't really get what I'm saying. That is called, besides arrogance, it's also called narcissism because everything, again, is seen through the lens of one person. They're unable to put themselves aside. And maybe here there's another perspective. So you can imagine living with a person like that in marriage it's not a simple matter because that person can never be wrong. And everything in life is seen through that person's, what is good, what, what's in it for me. So the concept of selflessness, the concept of truly giving, without you being involved, almost does not exist in a narcissistic person. And there are many other signs. I'm not going to go through here the whole discussion on what is narcissism. It's not difficult to tell when you're with a person like that for a while. You start seeing different behaviors. But essentially, there's never a real relationship with a person like that because the relationship, they love themselves more than they can be connected with someone else. If the someone else serves them, then they're there. That's not called a relationship. A relationship, by definition, means that there's a give and take and there's a back and forth and there's listening and speaking. So obviously, there are many measures and levels of narcissism to the point there's even a diagnosis today called a Narcissistic Personality Disorder, NPD, and it's considered a disorder, a personality disorder, which, of course, the big question now is, is this treatable? Can you remedy it? Can you do anything about it? We know there are many disorders, there are many psychological issues people have, that yes, with work, and with um, uh, sometimes even medication, and with uh, effort and therapy, you could improve things. The questions about narcissism, the consensus mostly by psychologists today is that it's not treatable. That basically if someone's married to a narcissist, 
Sometimes they'll tell it to you explicitly, sometimes not, that it's time to get out of the marriage, because marriage cannot work. Unless somebody's ready to be completely uh, stepping uh, a doormat and completely be abused, it, it will not work. And um, obviously it's a very pessimistic view, and I'm going to address this, of course, um, hopefully with some new refreshing and surprising perspectives on it. But this is the consensus. And the reason is very simple. The reasoning behind this is because narcissistic behavior, someone that suffers from this condition, is a person who is uh, grandiose and has a, a, an inflated view of everything and never accepts being vulnerable and will never acknowledge vulnerability and mistakes due to deep insecurity, of course. So when a person is incapable of acknowledging a problem, how, do you, how can you work with them? They are part of the problem. So you could say, well, that's the same true with other disorders. Not necessarily. Depression, for example, or even bipolar, even though it's embarrassing and it could be issues of pride and sometimes difficult to accept. Again, God forbid, no, no one should ever know of these challenges. But there comes a point where a person can come to understand that they have some chemical imbalance. And with the proper medication, they can be pretty much keep it at bay. I know people who have very functional lives, are happily married, their spouses are happy, their children are happy. They, what was difficult for them was to accept that they have this life, unfortunately it's a life sentence, but medication can keep it at bay. You find, for example, people who are like alcoholics, who maybe initially are in denial, which everybody goes through initially, but then at some point, either because the life falls apart or because they hit rock bottom, this is also true about other forms of addictions, whether it's gambling addiction, sexual addiction. These, many of them, and not always, they are treatable if the person acknowledges there's an issue. But if a person does not acknowledge there's an issue, obviously it can't help someone who's not ready to help themselves. But narcissism, the problem is that the whole issue is that the person is not acknowledging their issues. The other things you could say, you know what, I am an alcoholic, God forbid, and I need help. So you go to AA, you go to other type of groups or other type of interventions. But when it comes to something where you completely, your whole being, your whole personality is defined by that you're not what you think you are, that becomes a tremendous problem. Uh, there are other examples. I'm not going to go through every nightmare scenario, but we're talking about narcissism. This is why the consensus by many experts is that it's not really healable. Unless the person really comes to understand and acknowledge, yes, I have a problem. I personally have dealt with people of this caliber and this uh, issue. And to the point I've even seen people who actually acknowledge they have an issue, but doesn't last. They acknowledge it, but they go back to their behavior. And when you talk, say to them, so what happened? I was not in control of myself. And then comes the, all the distortions. So there is a strong argument to be made that it's unfortunately something that's not easily treatable or maybe not treatable at all. However... I come from a school of thought that does not accept such a thing called fatalism and that the resignation, that it's impossible to heal someone. Obviously, it's true that in Chavish Matar Satsme is an expression in the Talmud that says a person who's tied up in fetters, a person who's in a pit can't pull themselves out. In simple English means when you're subjective, you yourself can't free yourself because you're part of the problem because you don't see clearly. It's like the guy, when you say to him, do you have any blind spots? He says, yes, but I know what they are. If you know what they are, they're not blind spots. So, is an expression in the Bible and the Torah that bias, prejudice, and bribery blinds even the, wise of the, even the eyes of the wise and distorts the tongue of, even of the righteous. 
So you call them wise. We're not talking about fools. That's the problem. The, the wiser someone is, the more prejudice can distort them because they're so smart, they know how to mask and cover up their uh, subjectivity. But that doesn't mean they aren't subjective. So coming from that school of thought that there is so no such thing as resignation or fatalism where there's a dead end, you have to say that every situation, including narcissism, can be dealt with. Now this doesn't mean, just like when I mentioned before, bipolar or other, God forbid, disorders or issues, doesn't mean heal means that you get rid of it. A chemical imbalance is a chemical imbalance. Just like a person may have diabetes, A, type 1 from birth, or some people have iron deficiencies, or they have other chemi- uh, vitamin supplement needs. That's part of their body makeup. When I say healable, healable doesn't mean you get rid of the disorder. It means you can neutralize it. You can keep it under control. Like many different proper things that people have sometimes, as I said, genetic or other things that are affect, affect them. That doesn't mean that they, cha- that they can actually get rid of it, but you can control it, and it shouldn't destroy your life and other people's lives. So, so coming from that school of thought, even narcissism can be handled. But the question is how, and how we look at it when we're dealing with the issues that we're addressing here. And, um, of course, this is a question not just for the individual, is there hope, but also for spouses and for children and for families. But like anything, there's the expression, which means knowing the problem is half the cure. Without understanding really a problem, you never can cure it. You can perhaps treat the symptoms, but not the root of the issue. Symptoms is, you know, a person bleeds, they put a Band-Aid. You have some pain, you take a painkiller. But that's a symptom, symptomatic, that's a remedial solution. It's not long-term, and then definitely they're not eliminated from the root. So the real question, like in any issue, to really any type of healing, any type of growth, because I want to say that this is not just a, a discussion here for narcissists. It's really a discussion for all of us, because all of us have our flawed human beings. None of us are perfect. As a matter of fact, we're now in a period of time, which is one of the reasons I'm speaking about it now, which is called the 49 days of personal refinement. In the language of Hebrew, it's called Birr Hamidis, that you have 49 days between Passover and Shavuos. 49, as the Torah says, 7 times 7, you shall count, you shall count these days, 7, seven weeks and 7 weeks, 7 times 7, 49 days. And each day, in many of the sitters, in any of the prayer books, you'll find corresponding to each day is one of the 7 times 7, 49 human emotional attributes, starting from love within love, chesed chesed, and concluding with malchus dignity within dignity. I actually wrote a book many years ago, actually connected to this class. I actually didn't even write it as a book. I remember it was maybe almost, almost 25 years ago, actually. I was giving a class, and I was teaching this idea, and, and people started, I was teaching certain similar ideas, and someone said to me, what are this 49 days? Can you explain each week's attributes? What can we do about it? Because we say, we say the prayer, and then we say, may God help us to refine this and this particular attribute. So to be honest, even though I grew up with it, I asked many people who are scholars and my colleagues and teachers and so on, and no one really could explain what most of these 49 days were about. Generally, certain general principles, yeah, but not the details. So what I did was every week I would give a handout, and I actually wrote up a short English description of what each of these attributes means, some little thought and questions to ask yourself about what to be able to evaluate your own so-called that aspect of your being, and then with an exercise for each day. It was very popular, 
And I would just give it out every year, and then people started hearing about it, so I started passing out copies. So there's once an artist, a graphic artist that was at the class, her name was Ray Ekman, and she came over to me and she said to me, do you mind if I take together your page? Your pa- they were just white, you know, black, big eight and a half by 11 pages. Do you mind if I uh, take it and uh, turn it into some type of design? So I said, by all means. And she turned it into this like very like a journalistic uh, journal, like a, like a uh, you know, those, uh, what are they called? Pads. And uh, she came to me and I said, you know, let's, let's go for it. And we published it. And it was completely self-published. I never knew where it was going to go. And it took, it took off in ways that I, you know, I could never have imagined. Right now it's probably sold 150,000 copies maybe. And it's online and apps and it's been translated. I'm not saying this, I'm not trying to, uh, maybe it's a plug, but that was not my intention. My intention is that it's a fascinating journey, which I myself discovered when I started researching and looking up the sources in Kabbalistic and Hasidic texts, how actually... Just like you go to a doctor and get an x-ray of your body or MRI of your inner systems, this too is like an x-ray of your soul. That the psyche and the human soul is made up of components. It's not physical components. It's either intellectual or emotional components. What's called the famous ten spheres, which from there evolve the ten faculties, conscious faculties, which which in turn originate from superconscious faculties, and it's a whole discussion in, in the mystical teachings of, uh, of, the, of Judaism that discuss it sometimes in cryptic form, but when translated properly and applied, it actually is a very palatable and practical guide to really evaluating yourself to the point that I remember a number of years ago I got a call from a psychiatrist in Salt Lake City uh, who, was, who was running a rehab program for a drug and alcohol, um, a drug and alcohol people, uh, rehab. And he said that he uses this book, even though it wasn't a Jewish rehab, he says he uses this book as, as required work for each person in his rehab because it's one of the, he says, the only thing I found that actually focuses not just be a better person, but on details. Just to give an example. For example, let's start with just the first two days. I mean, now we're in the third week of Teferis, which I'll talk about in a moment, but that's just a simple example would be. Love is the first of all seven emotional attributes. Everybody needs love, both to give love and to receive love. But that's a very big statement, love. How do you love? Do you love in a healthy way? Do you know how to receive love in a healthy way? Okay, so how do you analyze that? But if you break it down into detail, into seven components within chesed, chesed of chesed, and gvura of chesed, and teferis of chesed, and so on, you come away with an unbelievable portrait of what your love looks like. It's like literally a diagnosis. To diagnose something, you need to test it, right? Like, for example, if you go for a health checkup, health checkup means that they'll go through a bunch of series of tests to evaluate your healthy, what you're made up, and where you're strong, where you're weak. You suddenly see these muscles are stronger, these muscles are weaker, your eyesight, your hearing, your internal systems. That's a whole thing. The same thing is with your emotional life. So love. Some people, for example, are very good. They know how to give. They give very well. They give easily. There are other people that are very not as easy at giving. They're very stingy. They're miserly. Very hard to get from them anything. But some people know how to give, but they don't know when to stop giving. So chesed needs gvur chesed. Just like if chesed is the gas, gvur is the brakes. What is that? Gvur is kshamim, for example. Rain. Rain is chesed. It's flow of water that, that waters and nurtures the fields. But if the water comes down in floods, like the Talmud says, when he prayed for water, 
um, it said that he prayed for water and the water came down in buckets and it drowned and flooded the field so it destroyed the field just as much as a drought would destroy so then he said too much good cannot be received so I want to have the water in raindrops that's the beauty of rain that it doesn't just come down water it comes down in drops in drops it could be absorbed into the ground that's gvura within chesed so love in human relationships, you have to, giving is critical, but to give too much or to give too quickly, you can overwhelm the person you're giving to. So giving requires measuring the recipient, whether they're able to receive and how they receive, how you spoon feed it to them. You could spoil children in the worst possible way by too much giving, just as you can hurt them by too little giving. So right there you see an evaluation where some people say, yes, I'm very good at chesed, but I'm lacking gvurashab chesed. Some people's the other way around. They're very good at gvura. They know how to withhold. They know how to discipline. But they don't know how to love. And the discipline sometimes is very severe. You see this in many families sometimes. The discipline it may come with good intentions. But when it's lacking a warmth and a sensitivity, it can be extremely destructive. So that's just to give you one example of two days. Gvura shebe chesed, chesed shebe gvura, and so on. And the same thing is with all the seven times seven. So when you go through it in detail you really can come away and say, you know what, I'm very strong, for example, in Netzach. I'm very ambitious, I'm very determined, I'm very driven. But do you know how to also yield? Which is hoid. Hoida, from the word to yield. Like rach kekona. You should always be flexible like a reed, and not, kashika, not hard and inflexible like a cedar. And the same is with each one of the seven. You can find online on our site, or in the book, or there's a free app called My Omer, and you can really see this on your own. So really, this is a period of time, even though all year around we should be refining our personalities and developing our characters, but there's this time of the year that specifically focuses on this. And we are now in the third week of compassion. And to be interesting, compassion is actually the antithesis of narcissism. Because compassion means the ability to empathize for someone else. And a narcissist cannot empathize, because a narcissist sees everything through his own eyes, or her own eyes. So another sign of narcissism is lack of empathy. Now, it's important. There are sophisticated narcissists that know how to fake it. They know how to make believe like they have empathy. But when push comes to shove, you come to discover it's always about them, as I said earlier. Now, the question is whether people are born, they say in Yiddish, givarn or givarn. Whether you're born this way or you become this way. That's a very big argument going on about that. It's not really fully de- determined whether it's genetic or it's conditioning, meaning nurture or nature, whether you grew up in a home or you were, you were berated and you were put down. In other words, is narcissism something that becomes a developmental character um, disorder, or is it something that you are born with? You know, um, I would lean toward, and maybe probably say almost sure, that you're not born with it for many reasons. It doesn't mean you don't have inclinations. Because we all have inclinations. Remember, a predisposition doesn't mean that you are of a disorder. It means that you may have a leaning. Some people, as I said before, are by naturally givers. And you could see it. You could see it in families who don't know each other. And you see in a family trait, not due to education or culture, because like, you know, families, for example, that grew up in very different parts of the world, and you go and you see they have certain similar traits. They're very hospitable, for example. So it's clearly not a conditioning thing. It's clearly from birth. You see also sometimes a streak, a mean streak, or you could see a greedy streak, or you could see, as I said before, stinginess. These are predispositions that are not necessarily a disorder, 
they are, even though some uh, people say that stinginess is a machla, a disorder, but they're not necessarily disorders, they're predispositions. It means your personality has a leaning toward that way. Some people, for example, are far more very magnanimous, which means they're always giving. Others have very much discretion. They're very careful. Is one right or wrong? As I said before, it's all about moderation and balance. If you're magnanimous and don't know, have any discretion, you can end up hurting people. If you always have discretion and never have a certain giving attitude where you're just a little looser and a little more flexible, it's also, so it's also about moder- moderation. In the context of narcissism, the problem is it becomes something that's extreme. Because let's define this. Every person has a certain element of selfishness. You know, that's the way we are. Adam Karav Eitzel Atzmai is an expression in the Talmud. A person is close to themselves, meaning that the first person that you care about is yourself. That doesn't mean narcissism. That means the nature of a person is that you first think about yourself before you think about others. The question is whether it stays that way. A healthy person, yes, knows that they care about themselves, but they will make an effort to curb that and, and harness that and not let it become controlling. So they say, yes, I have a certain element where I think about myself, but I work and make sure to empathize and to care about others. You see this all the time. So even though people are very caring and giving, it doesn't mean they have nothing about them that's sometimes self-interest or self... As a matter of fact, there's a, con- there's a concept in the Talmud itself that talks about this balance, where at times it says, do you have to first take care of yourself or do you take care of others first? So there's the concept Chayach HaKaidmin, for example. If you have, let's say, a small bottle of water, and you're in a desert, and there's only enough water for you and someone that's with you, and you control the water, who do you give it to, yourself or the other person? So the answer is, you have to take care of yourself. There are exceptions, of course. Not because selfishness trumps, I shouldn't say that word today, because selfishness overrides um, selflessness, but because God created us in a way that if you don't take care of yourself, who's going to take care of you? However, how do we balance that? We balance that with knowing that a person who's only self-consumed and self-absorbed is also extremely not, is also not healthy. So there has to be elements where you have to share and with others. And there's the discussions exactly where that balance is. Push comes to shove. There's situations where the Torah says that you should, just like you got on a plane, they say put the oxygen mask first on yourself and then on someone else. Why? Because if you don't save yourself, you're not going to be able to help others. So if someone's drowning in the water, and you're not yourself are unable to swim, it's very nice and a very, uh, very big uh, self-sacrifice to go try to save the other, but you can both end up drowning. So it's not about self-preservation first, that you care about yourself. It's simply being prudent and practical. And the fact of the matter is, when, the way we were created is that when you feel pain inside of you, no one else knows that you feel pain. If we were so selfless and we always feel other people's pain without feeling our own, we could end up hurting ourselves. On the other hand, if you only feel your pain and you never feel any other pain, that's where it turns into narcissism. So the concept that each of us is a subjective human being and have self-interest, that per se is not a bad thing as long as you are in control of it and you make sure it's balanced with the rest of you. Hillel said it best. He said, mili." If I'm not for myself, who will be for me? That's how he begins. What does that mean? That if you're going to say, let someone else take care of me, or let someone else protect me, 
I'm not talking about a child, an adult. No, you were given resources to take care of your needs. And you need to feel the dignity and the majesty and the self-respect that you are able to take care of yourself and your life. But then he continues and says something which seems contradictory. If I'm only for myself, what am I? But you just said, if I'm, only, if, if I'm not for myself, what, who, uh, who will be for me? Ah, that is step one. You need to have a self. But then comes the self cannot be completely self-contained as if there's nothing else that exists in this world. Now you come to realize once you have the self, the self needs others and the others need you and you need to reach to them and you, need, you have a responsibility and obligation to help others and not just say, hey, as a matter of fact, one of the opinions in the Mishnah, someone says, shali, shali, shalach, shalach, but mine is mine, what yours is yours. So one opinion is, it's called the average temperament, midabainanis. There's another that says, midazdaim. Why midazdaim? Sdaim is, is the wicked city of Sdaim. Because it means we're all on our own. You take care of yourself, I take care of me. There's no charity, there's no give and take. It goes against the grain of nature. Everything in nature is a give and take. Everything breathes. Exhale, inhale. Everything is a symbiosis that feeds off each other. So Hillel's statement is tremendous when you see both sides of it. So that's the balance. If a person only has then they can be in a place they can end up becoming narcissistic. If they only have if they, if, they, if they continuously only think in, some, in terms of, of um, not, not, they only have, they think about one another without thinking about themselves, that's also not appropriate. That's where you find the Talmud that says even great tzaddikim, righteous people and scholars have to have a measure of self, called sometimes the eighth of an eighth, shminis shebishminis, because we do not believe in the concept of being a doormat. Someone will say, you know what, I'll be so selfless Everyone steps on me. That's not called selflessness. That's called low self-esteem and basically destructive. On the other hand, when you say, you know what, I have myself, but I also have the humility, humility is very different than being a doormat. In Hebrew, there are two expressions. One is called an anov, a humble person. Another is called a shuffle, a lowly person. Now, sometimes they're interchangeable, but when you break them down into, into this comparison, a humble person, you talk about Moses, was the humblest man that ever walked on this earth. What does that mean? He did not know his qualities. He did not know that God chose him to take the Jews out of Egypt, to give them the Torah, to be a leader for 40 years, to be the great Moshe Rabbeinu, the only man that ever saw God face to face, the greatest prophet. He didn't know all this. He was ignorant of his own qualities. Obviously not. However, Moses said, as this is the Balatanya, Alter Rebbe explains that these gifts that I have are not my own. It was given to me. I was blessed with them. Had someone else been blessed with these same gifts, they would have been greater than I am. In other words, he was very aware of who he is. And he understood very well his strengths. But he never took himself seriously to the point where he thought he's a self-made man. It's not It's not like I, I, I made this. He understood it came from a greater place. And he understood that all the greatness was not given for him, but it was given to serve. I didn't give it to you for, for you to become great, as God tells him in the chapter of when it talks about the golden calf. 
He gave it to you to serve others. And he understood that if someone else was given these strengths, they may have done better than he. A shuffle, a lowly person, a person of low self-esteem, deludes himself. Says, I have nothing, I'm worthless. Self-loathing. That's very different. That person is simply not deluding. They're just, they're not even acknowledging that they have strengths coming from another. It's not humility. That's called beating yourself up, which is actually just as um, abusive as someone who's arrogant. Because an arrogant person says, I, a narcissistic arrogant person says, I am the most important thing on earth. Everything is around me. Here, it's an inverted form of arrogance. Instead of saying that I am the most, you say, I am nobody. Who are you to say you're nobody? God created you in his divine image and put you on this earth, gave you special qualities. How could you say you're nobody? So it's another form of arrogance. It just doesn't take on the shape of an inflated ego. It takes on the shape of a shriveled doormat, which is equally problematic. So interestingly, when you think of it this way, the narcissist is actually has something com- comparable to the person who's completely self uh, self-effacing the, the, the doormat. And in truth, if you get to the root of it, why is a person a narcissist? Why can't they have a balanced view? Why can't they say, like I said before, you know what, I have qualities and I have value, but there's also other people in this world. And there are people I may be married to or people, a person I'm married to or my children or others, and realize, you know, I have my qualities and they have their qualities. And we work together. And you look around, as I said, in human nature, or look at the human body. There's a mind, there's a heart, there's a liver. There are thousands and thousands of systems at work. There's 70, 30 to 75 trillion cells in the human body. Trillion. And they work in a healthy person, in a healthy human being. They work in a symbiotic way, synchronized. So why can't a person come to understand that? That doesn't take away from anything from you. The heart is not less of a heart just because the brain has qualities. Because the brain needs the heart as much as the heart needs the brain. If the heart was not pumping blood to the brain, the brain would not be able to function. And vice versa, if the brain did not have the central nervous system. So why can't a human being simply understand that balance? Think about it, why? The answer is because they don't have that self-respect. As as counterintuitive as it sounds, the narcissist is actually the most self um, the, the most um, insecure person. And sometimes people hide their insecurity with making themselves sound like they're big and great. Someone who has to take away everybody else's territory means they don't have comfortable in their own territory. You'll see the people who are most secure in this world are the ones that can coexist and work with anybody. Why? Because they're not afraid you're going to take away my turf. I know who I am. I know my ani, I know what I am, and I know it comes from a greater place, and I know that there are others who also have equal qualities of a different sort, and I can't be complete without them, and they can't be complete without me. As soon as someone's unable to understand that or feel that, you have to identify there's a root for that. What's the root of it? Because it makes total sense. As a matter of fact, it's for your good. It would be like saying that one part of the body, the heart says, you know what? I'm angry and jealous of the mind. I'm the single most important organ. I don't want to co- cooperate with the brain. What would that be? That would be complete destruction for the heart and the brain. So ultimately, it's actually self-destructive. You know, imagine a person says, I don't need to breathe air. I'm a self-contained person. I take air into my mouth once, and I live on forever. 
Try it out, God forbid. It won't work. Or I don't eat food. I don't, I'm not dependent on any food. So you have to be only an insane person would say something like that. Because it's not that you are less because you need something else to help you. It's because you are a functioning and healthy organism. You realize that other organisms are necessary for you to be complete. It's the basis of all of nature, of all of existence. So if you see someone doesn't relate to that, you have to say, there's, there's smoke, there's fire. What's the root of it? Why would they not relate to that? So you could argue there's something, just some switch, or they have some, whatever they call it, a juke, you know, in cup. Like there's some, some type of something, they're missing a screw. But sometimes you see these people are not missing a screw. You could be brilliant. Or you could say that there's some fundamental insecurity that has caused this person to feel that the only way I could survive is if it's all about me. It's almost like I mentioned before the drowning syndrome. It's very interesting, very sad. When a person is drowning, unfortunately, they become so insane that anyone that comes to help them, including a lifeguard, and says, I'm coming to help you, they will not see it as help. They'll, pull, they'll be so desperate, they'll pull that person down with them. That's why good lifeguards, a trained lifeguard, knows how to take care of a drowning victim. You can't just go over and say, okay, I'm helping you. You have to take them from the back, you have to make sure that, because they could be their own worst enemy. You see this also, God forbid, with stroke victims who get so frustrated that they could end up doing things that are self-destructive. Why? Because when you're in a place where you're desperate, you do not behave rationally. So a narcissist, in a way, I'm not going to say it's overt desperation like a drowning victim where you see it in a very blatant way, but there is a form of desperation a person feels that I... I'm the only one that can take care of myself and everything. If I don't, if I'm not completely self-focused around me, I'm missing something. It's basically a profound form of insecurity. And this leads me to the point I was making before, that in any type of healing, you need to do two things I said before. I didn't mention the second one. I'll mention it now. One is you need to get to the root, as deep as possible to the root of the issue. If you don't get to the root of the issue... You're going to be dealing with symptoms, and you will not have solved the issue. The second thing you need to do is you need to know what resources a person has. Like someone will say, okay, you know, this, I've, I've had this discussion with a number of psychologists over the years. I said, so, so how do you know narcissism is not curable? They say, look, everything we do doesn't work. The person, in most cases, as I mentioned before, simply will not accept being vulnerable. They will not accept and say, I'm narcissistic. They'll always blame someone else. That's, by the way, another sign. And it's never about them. How could you help a person like that? They, they just will not, they refuse to accept there's a problem. And if there's a problem, it's everyone else. So I said, and this I always challenge, I said, you know something? You may be right based on your observations and based on scientific analysis. But you cannot know whether something is curable unless you know what a person is made of. You could think, I remember, I mean, we all have this, remember, when I was in, as a kid in school. So, you know, in every, every class, you have different types of students. You have students that are sometimes very shy, very quiet. There's students that other students pick on. You know, children are children. They can be very cruel, and they can be very hurtful. And as I grew, and I used to look at this, I don't know, for some reason I was always sensitive to this. I used to see some of the kids, I remember in one class, the next class under me, there was a kid who stuttered. And people would make fun of him, stuttered. And there was the children that were very shy, and they were made fun of as well, and picked on by other students, by the teachers even. 
and the bullying and all that stuff that comes with it. Obviously, as a child, I was not really in a position where I understood it or knew what's going on. But I think back, and I see that some of these kids were tremendous talents. They just were very shy. Shyness was always assumed to be stupid. The child has nothing to say. Every time there's a question, the child, this, and you turn to this student, he is always quiet. So the assumption was, nothing to say, okay, never uh, weak mind, feeble mind. Some of the most shy kids were the most talented, the most gifted. And it took a special teacher who really appreciated and saw through the facade. Because not always what appears on the surface is what it is. So I said to myself, and I say to myself this many times, how many of us have been written off because we appeared like a nebuch, like a weak case? So, you know, so, so maybe students or parents said, okay, fine, we'll compensate. We won't put too much pressure on this child. And instead of really saying, one second, this child has other gifts, and maybe if this child was pressured in a good way, who knows what will come out of this child? So how many children have never really come to excel because they were already diagnosed with some type of, some type of condition or some type of uh, deficiency? And it may, it may even be true that they were in some areas weaker, but they may have been in other areas stronger. So you can't just write somebody off because you say, you know what? I don't see a solution. You don't see a solution because you don't know the depths of the human spirit. Whenever you hear the story of Helen Keller, among others, it's always the most amazing story. Why? Because here's a woman, born deaf, mute, blind, and a few other handicaps. Almost impossible to imagine this person would be able to accomplish anything. The famous story of Helen Keller. And yet, with her teacher, she was able to achieve unbelievable feats because we do not know the depth of the human spirit and this is a tremendous message that's critical in people especially in the world of psychology and psychiatry dealing with the human psyche and soul you could say i don't see a solution but what do you see how do you know how how many how many resources the soul has if you understood the depths and the power and the reservoir and arsenal of a soul's powers and abilities you may say you know what there are abilities there that I just have never noticed. So to write somebody off and say, okay, you know what, there's nothing you can do here, is a grave mistake. So I'm not suggesting narcissism is an easy challenge. You still need to get to the root of the problem, as I said, but you also have to get to the root of the strengths that a person has. Is there such a thing as a narcissistic soul? Let's put it that way. And here the answer is absolutely not. So you could have a person has narcissistic tendencies, they could even say a person has a narcissistic disorder, but is their soul narcissistic? So we have a prayer we say every morning, and I cite it very often here in the class. It's called Neshama Shenasatabi Taharihi. The soul you have given me is pure. This is a prayer we say to God, Elikai. And it follows an earlier prayer, the first prayer in the morning, where we say, I acknowledge to you, I acknowledge you for returning my soul to me. The fundamental principle is that the human soul and the first statement in the Bible, in the Torah, about what makes a human being a human being is not the intelligence of the human being. It's not the description of an intelligent creature, uh, an uh, emotional creature, a loving creature. The answer is, Tzalem Elikim, created in the divine image. However, that's explained. But one thing is for sure is that the soul has something about it that is not just human. 
It comes from a greater and purer place. So based on that, if every person on earth is, can say, so what about a narcissist? Does a narcissist also say that prayer? And what does it mean? My soul is pure, but what? But I'm a narcissist? That means the purity of your soul is deeper than your narcissism. That's the key. So when you look at modern psychology, and I've talked about this a number of times, you know, even though today Freud is not necessarily the only school of thought or the dominant school of thought, but he's still the guy to disagree with. He's considered the father of modern psychology. Yes, Jewish Freud with a Jewish mother. And Freud's main teaching was the id, that the human being is fundamentally a selfish, selfish, narcissistic, sexual creature. And it's all about the pleasure principle. What gives me pleasure, that's all that matters. But, as he developed the theory, a human being also has an ego, and a called a superego, which has a sense of virtue and right, and right and wrong. And to coexist with others, it superimposes, basically, and keeps under control this selfish, uh, pleasure-driven animal. Because if not, we'd all destroy each other. So we need red lights and green lights. Not because fundamentally there's something about red light and green lights, but we wouldn't have that. We wouldn't coexist. Okay, the id. And a lot of therapy and a lot of psychology today is still based on that principle that the human being is fundamentally driven by this force. Now, there are absolutely other schools of thought. Carl Jung, and especially Viktor Frankl, and others said, no, the driving force by Carl Jung is the soul, some type of spiritual force. In Viktor Frankl, man's search for meaning is the search for meaning, purpose in life. Far more sublime and far more idealistic pursuits. But there's still the, the, the prevalent principle in many, much of psychology is that we still have this very deep narcissistic force inside us. What does uh, Jewish psychology have to say that precedes Freud by thousands of years? It says the human being is a, created in a divine image. It only in chapter 2 in the Torah does it say, that there's an inclination, a person from youngest age that has selfish inclinations. Yetzirah, that's where the word Yetzirah comes from. But the first time the human being is described is divine image. Taherahi, pure. In the language of Hasidic thought, Atzilus. That's where every soul originates from. That's a pure place. That doesn't mean that it doesn't go through a stage of evolution to the point that it does manifest in a selfish body and a selfish animal soul. And this is the basis of the whole Tanya, that there's two souls, that they conflict with a battle with each other. One is the selfless reflect, uh, 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 divine soul, which, is, which is, resides in the mind, which is reflective. And the other is the selfish animal soul that resides in the heart, which is impulsive. So reflective versus impulsive, okay? And there's a battle. But who is the core human being? Not the id, but the yid, the Y-I-D, the pintala yid, the pintala yid, the spark. So Freud had it right, but he only dug that far, as far as he can get. And I guess that was due to his experience and his lovely mother's experience, that the deepest he can get was, you know, you dig and dig, but he didn't dig deeper enough. Behind the id, there's another one step, which is the tahir, the pure. So if you go with a Freudian model, or a Freudian-Darwinian model that I often refer to, or even variations of it, you come away with saying, okay, 
if a person is fundamentally selfish, and then you superimpose order and superimpose discipline to have a mental life, an or, or, a, 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 a decent life, a civil life. But fundamentally, push comes to shove, we're all narcissists. Then, of course, the answer is a narcissist, a true, someone whose life is dominated by narcissism probably can't be healed. But if you go deeper and realize that the innermost part of the soul is not the selfish id, not the beast, but the selfless and giving and divine soul that is absolutely secure with itself because it knows its purpose and mission because it comes from a, go- a godly place, then the narcissism is there, but it's not the end of the road. It means you can dig deeper. <clears throat> and that's a very fundamental different approach. So I would not argue with the psychologists that feel it's unhealable because they're ba- ba- I would say, based on your axioms and your givens, yes, if you say, for example, a person is born sick, then of course, when you see the sickness manifest, you'll say, okay, what can we do? That's how he was born. But if you realize a person was never really fundamental or deeper down is not sick, and there's, no, and there's a deeper place, as the words of the Medrash, the Medrash says an interesting thing. It says, Nefesh Kisechta. Not the Medrash, the Zohar. The Holy Zohar, the mystic, classic work of Jewish mysticism. It says, Nefesh Kisechta, soul that will sin. So the Zohar asks the question, Nefesh Kisechta, to me it's a wonder. How could a soul sin? A body sins, the animal soul sins, but a pure divine soul? Because it's not, because its soul is not capable of sinning. It's capable of manifesting itself in a world, in a hostile world that's hostile to the, the spiritual, therefore it can, it can sin. But, but itself, it remains always in a pure state. Which is what the Talmud says, even though he sins, even though he sins, he remains Israel. Because at the core, there's always that pure place. Now, this does not forgive or overlook the fact that a person can be a full-blown narcissist. It means, however, there's hope if you can dig deeper than where the narcissism is rooted. So the two things that are necessary for healing and intervention would be require a, a, mod- a modality that, number one, would help understand where the narcissism comes from, and that is from a deep insecurity because, reason number two, because the person and others do not see that person as someone that's a divine, secure entity, but as an insecure. And the insecure will always be fighting for their turf. They'll always be fighting for something because they don't know what I'm good at. So obviously you look around and say, I see other people have things, so I want what they have. That's where jealousies and most of the human vices come from. When you don't know what you are good at, you're always going to look to others to try to find your identity. And um, as the Kutzker Rebbe says, they say, expression that he says, that if I am I because you are you, and you are you because I am I, I am not and you are not. But if I am I because I am I, and you are you because you are you, I am and you are. Did you get that uh, poetry? What it means in simple English like this, that if your identity is defined by the proximity to others, means you don't, your identity is not generated from within, but you always look around, you know what, maybe that's me, maybe that's me, maybe that's me, so you will never be. And the other person as well, they look around and they're looking for identity outside themselves. They will never be because they're not looking where they should be looking. They're looking elsewhere for, to find their security. Unfortunately, this is very, whereas, very common in many circles and many conformist systems 
that you're forced to try to be like somebody else. You know, the, uh, the concept of altifrish minatsibur, which means don't separate yourself from the community, don't be different, can take on an extreme which was never the intention, which is you lose your entire identity. The verse also says, you should educate a child, according to his or her way. That's not conformity. It means they have a unique way. So conformity would be where you completely lose your identity, like I mentioned before. There's no enanili mili altogether. There's only imani. The other extreme to have only danili mili, only self, and there's no cooperation with others, is also equally problematic. So conformity means that, yes, you work together with others, but it doesn't mean you lose yourself. There's a very beautiful medrash that says that when you read the, the Torah, you read the example, we're coming soon, a few weeks from now, to Shavuos, when they stood at Sinai. So you read the Ten Commandments, and you read other sections in the Torah, and the Ten Commandments is all written in the singular. Anoichi Hashem I am your God. Well, now, there were millions of Jews standing there, men, women, and children. When you speak to a group in Hebrew, you say, In English, when you say you, you can mean an individual, you can mean a group. In Hebrew, an individual is lecha, or a woman lach, and in the group is lachem, or lachen. It's plural. And here you find that the Torah is written in the individual as if there was only one person standing at Sinai. So one answer given in the Medrash is this, that every person standing there heard the words as if nobody else was there. It was completely personalized, as if no one else. It's like someone speaking to millions of people, but you heard it as my song. So you can listen to a song, many other people are listening, but you hear it touches you. The exact opposite of conformity, the concept of individuality. But at the same time, it's an individuality that cooperates and is complemented by all the others. So to go back to this narcissism idea, is it difficult? Yes, it's very difficult because, as I said, a narcissist in most cases doesn't accept there's a problem. So what can one do if you're married to a narcissist? If you are a narcissist, you're most likely not going to be able to accept that there's a problem. You're not going to admit it. But if you're married to one, there are things that can be done, and I would never put, tell someone to torture themselves, but if you really want to try, you really need to do two things. You need to realize that the person who's the narcissist in your life is, uh, it's a, it's a, a not, not, I'm not in any way justifying it or giving them any license or excuses, but they're really, at the end of the day, it's a very sad story. It's a person who's deeply, deeply, deeply insecure. And they're so deeply insecure, they don't even recognize it. And everything they do is about them, and they cannot really see things from another person's perspective. Now, this doesn't mean that, that you have to live with it, but it means it's important to realize that. Because when you realize that, then the question is, how can you help that person build security? That's the real question. Now, I would like to believe as well that when you speak to a narcissist, and you really can speak from words from the heart, not necessarily critically or angrily, perhaps you can reach that person, because you're reaching to try to understand and recognize that, yes, I'm not going to say to them, hey, I know you're an insecure guy and just hiding with narcissism. That's usually not going to fly. But in a sensitive way, if that person feels that you respect them, you perhaps can get through. And above all, and this is where I think the real healing can happen, if a narcissist is willing 
to allow themselves to have a real deep dose of spiritual wisdom and understanding what a soul is about, they may come to learn, number one, to be more secure with their soul, and number two, to recognize that it's with the soul that is deeper than their behavior and their narcissistic identity. That if they can connect to that place, they can come to a point where they can learn to give. And I've seen this, not often, but I've seen it. I'll, I'll explain in simple English. Is, there's the concept in Hasidic thought called bitl. Bitl is one of the key, key tools for all types of growth, no matter who you are. You want to, you're, you're on level one, you want to reach level two, you need a form of bitl because if you're too comfortable on your level, you're going to remain there. You need to shed that layer of skin. So it's almost like shedding, like um, suspending your state in order to go to a higher state. In the mystical language, the talkers talk about an amud, a pillar between one level of paradise and another level of paradise. Sometimes it's talk about a fiery river, a nahar dinner that cleanses someone to go from one state to another. If you look in life, everything in the using Hasidic language is yesh, ayin, and yesh, which means a state of being, then a vacuum that leads you to a higher state of being. You have to shed one layer of skin to assume a new layer of skin. You have to melt a piece of gold to turn it into ornament. A mother goes through childbirth pains and pregnancy to give birth to a beautiful child. Everybody goes through the awkwardness of adolescence to grow into an adult. And creativity is always a child of frustration. You ask any writer, any artist, anyone that's accomplished anything worth talking about, they will always tell you, the birth of something always came after a lot of frustration. You try to understand something, first you're all confused as you gather more and more data. And you think you're never going to get out of this mess. But you see it through, and you start seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, you start seeing clarity. Any true growth, which we call a metamorphosis, if it's relative small growth, then you're going from one step to the next step. But if you want to take a leap to any new dimension, a new paradigm, you always need a thing called bittel. The classic example for this is the story in the Talmud, Rab is master of the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud. Then the Talmud says, he wanted to master the Jerusalemite Talmud. It was a different academy of a different type of school of thought. So Abzera fasted. Some say 40 fasts, some say 100 fasts. Fasted. Didn't eat or drink. In order to forget what he learned, the Babylonian Talmud, to begin to understand the Jerusalem Talmud. So the obvious questions that are asked, what kind of, what does that mean? Since when does knowledge need to be forgotten to get new knowledge? Knowledge is accumulative. It sounds almost ridiculous. We're going to forget what you knew yesterday in order to learn something new tomorrow? Knowledge is accumulative. Today you know, tomorrow you build on that. You don't forget it, you build on it. Secondly, there's an actual law that says it's prohibited to forget Torah, which is divine Torah, intentionally. And here he went to fast intentionally, deliberately to forget so one of the brilliant answers given for this is that he didn't want to forget the knowledge. He wanted to forget the methodology. The Babylonian method is a very particular way of study. He wanted to forget that method in order to be able to learn a new method. Now this is an amazing feat because most of us, today they say by the time you're age seven, eight, you already have not all the knowledge, but you already have your mind and its wave patterns and patterns of thinking have been established. You're going to think a certain way. You're going to solve problems a certain way. 
Either you pick it up from home or school, or it's just the way you're wired. But it's very hard to change that later in life. And here, Abzer, years later, at what age he was, I'm not sure, 40. After mastering a methodology, he's going to learn a different type of methodology. And the first methodology would get in the way because it was a very different type of method. Without going into the difference, it's not relevant here. So this is used as a perfect example of real bittel. Because he was a true scholar and a true uh, free thinker. And he really wanted to know a new way. The only way to get there is to forget his me- previous method. It's like learning a certain method from a teacher. Forgetting that method in order to learn another method. So it wasn't the knowledge that he was trying to forget. It was the methodology. So here's the key. One of the secret weapons to transform yourself, if whatever personality you're like, whether you're, let's say you're a person that is a certain strong, a harsher personality or a more softer personality, or in this case, a more narcissistic, one of the ways is to recognize, yes, that you are a servant, a messenger of God's in this world. And when you have that bitl, that can say, it demands of you to do something different than you would do on your own. So sometimes the way to get through a narcissist is not to say you're a narcissist and let's start fixing it because you're going to destroy your life. It's sometimes to say, like a soldier in an army may not be wanting to do a certain mission, but the commander-in-chief or the general or the superior said, this is what you have to do. And we grow through this because we do exactly not because we want to do it, but because we have to do it. This is called the mashmas, they call it the commitment and devotion when you're dedicated to a cause. So interestingly, I would say that any psychological system that does not have this element where you actually see yourself charged with a mission from a higher cause will ultimately be subject to the whims and the subjectivity of your own state because you can never lift yourself up to a higher place. Someone who's able to say, I am here a servant of God, a messenger. My soul was sent here to this world to accomplish something. And then that can reach deeper than your personality because what's demanded is for you to do the job. doesn't matter how you feel about it. So if you try to argue with a narcissist or with anyone that has any type of emotional blind spots, so then, you know, you're going to get their argument. But if you say to them, hey, you know something? There's an actual mitzvah. There's a command that you need to be empathetic. You need to show empathy. Not because you're in the mood of it. Precisely because you're not in the mood of it. That's what you need to do. That can work. But that, of course, is contingent on the fact that the person accepts that there is a higher order, that there's a higher calling. That's the challenge. So I have found this to work I know it sounds almost like a backdoor way, but it works for those that you're able to get to a place like that. The problem, and I have to acknowledge, the problem is that most narcissists, they may say that they're God-fearing and they may say they'll do whatever God wants, but when push comes to shove, if it gets them to get out of their comfort zone, suddenly they don't listen to that either. So I'm not suggesting this can work across the board, but I do suggest it's a possible tool to be used and used wisely can probably help someone get beyond I don't like to quote AA, but one of the big things that makes it work, it says, is I have surrendered to a higher power, recognizing I don't have the power. Why is that so vital? Because as long as you think you're in control, then your mistakes are going to continue to make, uh, control you. Because you think you're in control. That vulnerability, that acceptance that you're not in control, that there's some other higher force that tells you what to do, 
can be the greatest gift that you can have. Now, can you get through to a narcissist with that message? As I said, I've seen it happen, but I don't see any other way in. So even though it's, it's, it's definitely difficult, but at least there's a hope by recognizing, as I said, the two things. Number one, that there is a root to the problem, and it's usually a deep insecurity that can come from young childhood. It can come from seeing patterns of people behaving in insecure ways to the point that they become completely self-absorbed. And number two, the antidote, knowing that the soul is deeper than the narcissism, that the healing of the healthy place is deeper than the unhealthy place. And that's critical, as I said, across the board in every type of healing. If you don't believe that your healthier place is stronger than your unhealthy place, then what do you, what is, what's left to hope for? Then you become like damaged goods and you're doomed. And the first thing, the root, understanding the root of things, because the root helps you realize it's not where you began. You know, if a person travels, one of the examples they give, somebody, let's say, is born in a forest or born in a dark pit, and they live their whole life there to a point that they don't even know there's another reality. So when they see a light, they don't think it's a light. They think it's uh, just a, uh, like the sun shining or something. They don't really, they think this is their natural habitat is darkness. Well, the Chassidim, there's a story in the olden days, there was no air conditioning. So some of these very hot, hot summer days in, the, in, the Soviet, in Russia. So the only way you can have any relief from this terrible heat was to go into these cold basements that was under the ground. So there was away from the sun and it was cooler. The problem is there was no electricity. So these rooms were also, these basements were very dark. So one day a Chassid went down to one of these places for some relief from the heat. And, um, and as he comes downstairs, he says, it's so dark here, it's so dark. So one of the other people sitting there, who he couldn't see, he just hears them say, don't worry, you stay here for a while, you get used to it. So he said, that's exactly the problem, I don't want to get used to it. Some declared at some point that you see that the darkness you think is not dark anymore. The famous verse in the, in the, in the book of Deuteronomy that says, Haster, Aster, Panai. The double covering of the face, God's face. So the Balsham Tav asked, what's this Haster, Aster, double? And answers because there's two types of darkness, or two types of denial, if you wish. One is, you know it's dark, it's dark outside now. Everybody knows it's dark. And you know, in a few hours from now, in the morning, the dawn will break and it'll be a new day. Then there's a darkness that's so dark, it conceals the fact that it's dark. Haster, Aster. It conceals the Hester. It conceals the concealment. To make you think, it's all right, what kind of dark? It's not dark, it's light outside. Once a person reaches a place like that, there's no hope, he doesn't even realize it's dark. So there's that challenge of how you get, how do you pierce such a thing? The only way you can pierce it is by recognizing, as I said, that there's a root, there's a root to it. The root is if you grew up in an environment where you can constantly convince that darkness is light. You know, like some people, they say, um, they hide their ignorance with their arrogance. So instead of saying, I'm ignorant, they make believe like they're smart. They grew up around people who are ignorant. And ignorance breeds ignorance. And when they really meet, meet a, a smart person, they say, no, that smart person is, is an idiot. So they become very arrogant, and they, never can, they can never even see that they're ignorant. 
So the two things, the number one is realizing that people grow up sometimes in environments that are very insecure to the point that they convince themselves that insecurity is perfectly normal. And the second point, which is maybe even more important, is how do you redeem yourself from that is sometimes the only way is to, is to, is to um, the bittle, is to, get, is to uh, suspend your way of thinking and realizing there's another way to think. Now again, this is not easy, but it's doable. I've seen it done. It takes work. It takes a lot of work. But it can be done because when you're able to come to recognize it's not the way you think it is, that's the beginning of the first step where a person realizes, I may be living in a delusion. Now, it's not comfortable to come to that point. It sometimes takes a lot of time because people keep on denying it, but it's doable. So, as we are here in the third week of the counting of the Omer, the week of compassion, Teferis, empathy. Empathy, Rachmanus. Rachmanus is not chesed. Chesed is kindness. Rachmanus is compassion. So it says in some of the, some of the Hasidic discourses, that Chesed says, be kind to someone. And Gvurah says, no, they don't deserve to be kind. They deserve, to, they're guilty. Comes compassion and says, even if they're guilty, still be compassionate. So I remember once at the end of one of these classes years ago, we were sitting and talking, and somebody walks in, it was the middle, it was a winter night, I remember. Guy walks into the class. One of these guys, one of these con artists, that starts saying that he has a baby outside in the car, this, and they don't have tickets back to New Jersey. They need, he needs $85 to get back. Like, why did he leave a baby in the car? You know, I right away recognized this guy's, you know, one of these things, okay. I didn't say anything. I didn't want to embarrass him either. But one guy sitting in the class pulls out $85 and gives it to him. Okay, very nice. The guy leaves. We all look out the window. Yeah, what car? When car? He just went off somewhere. So I say to, to the fellow that gave him the money, I said, you knew that. Uh, he's just, he's, he's full of it. So he, he, his answer was amazing. He said to me, look, I'm also full of it. When I come up to heaven and they're going to say, you know, you were a con artist, I, I don't want them to ask me. So I didn't ask him. You know, everything is me the connect and me the tit for tat. So I didn't calculate what kind of con artist this is and I hope they'll treat me the same way. So I found it to be very interesting and I really appreciated it because it wasn't, it wasn't a gay, it didn't care whether the guys are kind of, bottom line is I did my part. You know, I don't know if this is compassion or if it was getting his own guilt, I'm not sure. But the point I want to make is the Midas HaRachamim is actually the expression used by God. The highest revelation that happened in the entire Torah was not the giving of Mount, the Torah at Sinai. That was unbelievable. But then what happened, 39 days later, the Jews built a golden calf. And God said he wants to destroy the people. And Moses marches back up on the mountain, 40 days, another 40 days. And what does he accomplish? He accomplishes that God reveals to him the secret 13 attributes of divine mercy, what we call the Yud Gimel Midas Arachim. And till this day, they remain very cryptic. We say, Hashem, Hashem, Kelachim, Ochanan, and Yom Kippur. The day Moses, Moses comes back with the second tablets. The day that he gained what? Forgiveness. Salachti God's compassion. The Torah was given, unbelievable. It took 40 days to get the law. But it took 80 days to get compassion. To get forgiveness. To get hope. Because that's a far different thing. 
Torah was chesed, teres chesed, chesed. But teferis reaches deeper. If you look at the Kabbalistic structure of the ten spheres, so chesed is on the right, gvur is on the left, and where's teferis in the center? Priyach hatichin, it's the middle rod, amavriyach min that runs through like the spine, from the head all the way down. So you have spheres that are red, uh, right, left, center. Chachma bina das, center. Chesed gvura teferis, center. Netzachayja sage, center. Malchus, center. Keser, center. So the center rod, the middle rod, is the balancing one. And it reaches deeper than all the spheres because it goes right up to the top. Why? Because compassion, what do they say? They say to err is human. To forgive is divine. Because to, be, to live a life following what you're asked to do, that's a life you're living by the game plan. But let's say you waver off, you wander off the, 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 the reservation. You could say, it's too late. You don't know what to do. Now, comes this third path, the middle path that says, we can reach to a much higher place, compassion, that can transform even wandering off the path. That's how deep and profound it is. So that's the week we're in. So compassion is the antithesis, and I could say the antidote to narcissism, which leads me to the final bottom line tool. Teach a narcissist to be compassionate. And then you begin to have the healing. Now they may not be in the mood of it. And they may also think of it as also another way to manipulate. No, but that's the key. Act on compassion and you'll have yourself a tool. Because compassion does two things. It gets to the root and counters the root of narcissism, which is insecurity. The ability for you to be compassionate about someone else is that counters that. And it gets back to the pure part of your soul that's deeper than any of the flaws, including the narcissistic tendency and disorder. So, as obvious, this is a beginning of a discussion that requires a lot more to be thorough and exhaustive. But I believe there is here, in my opinion, some fresh and new ways of looking at both the soul and at narcissism, and perhaps give some hope to people who are dealing with this challenge themselves or their families or those around them. So to conclude on a happy note, compassion is the unbelievable ability to get out of your own comfort zone and show compassion to another. So my friends, I want to also say that this class was dedicated um, in honor of, I'm looking for the honor, Yes, in honor of the birth of Mordechai Levi ben Pinchas. Thank you for that. And please, we, we survive on your support. So go to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship to be able to sponsor this class or other classes. And uh, we're here every week, every Wednesday, the weekly global class, as well as our other resources that you can easily access at MeaningfulLife.com. Please communicate with us, like us on Facebook, share all the different social media channels that we're on. And we hopefully continue to bring you quality programming that can help you in your life and to help us in our lives that together glow on this glorious journey to a compassionate journey toward reaching greater and greater heights, not just, not just fighting the demons and, the, devil and the, the darkness, but also bringing tremendous light and compassion into our lives. Everybody be well and have a very blessed and compassionate week. Thank you.